You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming with Pastor Keith Miller. If you could stand to honor the reading of God's Word. (laughs) Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, says exactly why we stand, uh, why, the reason behind why we stand to honor the reading of his word. And so I'll just let Jesus speak, you know, for, for us as we look at Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 17. This is the word of the Lord. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You may be seated. So I want to just share a little bit of my, my, my background. I did something fun this week and for me, and I went down memory lane and just went online and tried to find some old old documents of the Bible college that I graduated from. So uh, both my wife and myself, we graduated from, it is now Cairn University. At the time that I started it as as a student, it was Philadelphia College of the Bible. It was started in Philadelphia, and then they moved the campus to Langhorne, Pennsylvania, and the only reason why I landed at that Bible college was because literally it was like a 20-minute walk from my house. I, uh, I, you know, you know, many of you know my story, and so I, I was pretty much forced to live on my own. And uh, you know, at the age of 19, I knew God was calling me into ministry. Going to a college, a Bible college, anywhere outside of my neighborhood was not very realistic. And so, one of the probably one of the top, well, it's considered one of the top Bible colleges in the country, was literally 20 minutes of a walk from my house, maybe 30 minutes. And so that's how I landed there. When I signed up or applied to the Bible college, I got accepted on academic probation because my SAT scores were, I don't even know what they were, but if you can, if you can imagine the lowest score you could possibly get, that's what I got. And the fact that I was able to get into the Bible college was a miracle, right? So they accepted me. But there were rules for, that, that you had to agree to in order to, to be a student there. And if you couldn't agree to the rules, then, then you couldn't go to the, to, the, to the college. You had to sign a statement. Now, the rules shifted a little bit by the time I was ready to start my first semester at, uh, at the time, Philadelphia College of Bible, now Karen University. And uh, so I went online, I'm like, what were those rules that they did away with? What were, what were they? And so I found them. I found a statement from, uh, that was uh, sent to some academic board, and it was uh, dated 1988. And uh, what's interesting is there are 
there were 10 statements for student conduct that you had to say, I agree with. Uh, seven of those remain today. They've been tweaked and changed a little bit, and, and the wording has been massaged a little bit. But, but here are the three that no longer exist, and I want to read those for you. <clears throat> Gambling is viewed as an unwise use of God-given resources and therefore is not acceptable in any form. Students are not to attend places where gambling is the source of business or entertainment. Playing cards normally associated with gambling are not permitted in college facilities, on college grounds, or off campus at college-sponsored activities. So no playing cards. That was one of the rules that no longer is listed on their statements for student conduct and behavior. Another one, because a significant number of evangelical Christians view social dancing as morally questionable activity, society, or society dancing is not permitted on or away from the campus. Choreography in drama and musical productions is permitted, so no dancing. If you're a student there, no dancing. Um, I think Footloose. Okay. <laughs> One of my favorite movies. Uh, another, uh, a third rule, and this is the last one I'll read. Uh, there, there are varying attitudes among Christians regarding attendance at movie theaters. That being the case, the college desires not to be offensive to the conscience of any believer. Students are not permitted to attend movie theaters while re registered for an academic semester. At other times, students are free to make discretionary decisions in these areas while being sensitive and submissive to the standards of their local church and family. So while a student there, no movie theaters. Now, that changed, and also I believe no hair below the, you know, beyond the collar. And so I had already got, I mean, all through high school and my first year out of high school, I had long hair, believe it or not, uh, and, and so I had cut my hair. But, but those rules, those rules uh, changed. Now, I don't think playing cards uh, will lead to excessive gambling, right? I don't think that all forms of uh, social dancing is morally questionable. Uh, I can't dance well, but I like to dance. Uh, and I certainly do not think that seeing a movie in a movie theater will bring undue spiritual harm to other Christians. I love movies. So those of you who know me know that I love movies. Uh, but I appreciated, and I, I still appreciate, the heart behind the list of these, uh, of these standards. The ones that are listed uh, for the college today, I think, are, are good. And uh, the desire behind these, I think, was just, you know, we want students to, to live holy lives. But anytime you create rules that you think will hold people to a standard, like the, the example here, matters of con you know, related to matters of conscience, like it bothers my conscience, therefore I'm going to impose the rules that I should be adhering to upon others, that's legalism. And uh, you know, somebody described the reason why long hair was, was wrong for me when I was in high school shortly after I became a Christian. 
and why Christian rock music was not good for Christians. And he said the way they described it was it's kind of like the, uh, the balloons, at the time they would use balloons, that you would put in the gutters at the bowling alley to keep the ball from falling into the gutter. Uh, that's why we create these rules. That's what one pastor said to me. I said, I thought to myself, I think Jesus said something about that regarding the Pharisees. The Pharisees did the same thing. And so, so this was, the, I, I say all that because the context for this, the reason why Jesus, one of the reasons why Jesus said what he said in verses 17 through 20 was because you had Pharisees and scribes and other religious leaders who had set up a bunch of rules to keep, to keep those who, who, who loved God, loved Yahweh, uh, from falling in the gutter. That's legalism. And so uh, that, I just wanted to share that with you because I think I, I, when we get to verse 20, it, w- it will make sense. Where Jesus says, for, or said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We need, as individuals, as we strive for holiness, as we strive to, to, to follow Jesus, there are certain things some of you should not do because of your past. There are certain things that you, you know, there are certain addictions that God rescued you from or delivered you from. You should not probably be in the area where you will be tempted to dive into those addictions. But that's not true for every single Christian. Like some of you struggle with the addiction of, of, of alcoholism. That doesn't mean that it's sinfully wrong or that it's sinful to, to, to drink alcohol. It's sinful to, to, be, to get drunk. So, so really, it should be the Word of God that should be guiding us and shaping our conscience. And that's the whole context for this. So I showed a video to our life group, and it wasn't even planned. It was just, hey guys, I, you know, I just, and gals, we get, uh, I want to show you this video. And I showed it to them, and they all said, you really need to show this in church. Now, I think I've showed this a, a long time ago here at Meadowbrook, like several years ago. Um, that's a long time ago for me. But I, I, I want to show it again because I think what it does is it sets up verses 17 through 20 so, so well, and it's powerful. And I struggled with, should I show it at the beginning or should I show it at the end of my sermon? And I decided this morning, I'm just going to show it uh, at the beginning. So I want you to see this video, and then we'll dive right into the verses here. Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative in which every story, every character points beyond itself to one who is greater. The story of Adam and Eve is not just about the first man and woman. There is a true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. There is a true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that cries out not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. There is a true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void to create a new people of God. There is a true and better Isaac the son of laughter, of grace, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us all. There is a true and better Jacob, 
who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserve. So we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. There is a true and better Joseph who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. There is a true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. There is a true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. There is a true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his foolish friends. There is a true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. There is a true and better Esther, who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. There is a true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. There is a true and better Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. The Bible is not a series of disconnected stories. It is a single narrative that points to one person, Jesus. Jesus says, said in verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So there are three things that I just want to just point out to you from, the, from, these pas- from this passage, from these verses. And the first is that the Word of God points us to Jesus. It's all about Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, it's about Jesus. I, uh, after I became a Christian, somebody had gave me a study Bible. I actually have it in my office, and, and I, I was paging through it and just looking at all my underlining, all my markings in, in that study Bible. One day I hope to give it to one of my, one of my sons. But uh, it is the first Bible that I owned where the words in the New Testament, particularly in the Gospels, was read. Every time Jesus is recorded as saying something, those words were in red. How many of you have a red-letter Bible, right? I, I have multiple Bibles, <laughs> surprise, uh, and some of them have the words of Christ in red. I was wondering, because I never really thought deeply about that, what, where, how did that come to be? Because clearly, the, you know, the, the, the apostles and the disciples, when they, like Matthew, when he wrote the Gospel of Matthew, he didn't change the color of ink every time he he recorded the words of Jesus, right? So where did, where did that come to be? How did that happen? And there was this guy who, in the 18, late 1800s, early 1900s, uh, came up with this idea of putting the words of Christ in red. And he said, the reason for that, it's actually in the, I guess it was in the preface of the first, or the introduction of the first red-letter Bible, he said this, and the words will be on the screen. He said, Modern Christianity is striving zealously to draw nearer to the great founder of the faith, setting aside mere human doctrines and theories regarding him. It presses close to the divine presence, 
to gather from his own lips the definition of his mission to the world and his own revelation of the Father. The Red Letter Bible has been prepared and issued in full conviction that it will meet the needs of the the student, the worker, and the searcher after truth everywhere. And so I, I thought that was interesting because when I, when I, was, when I got my study Bible, I, I really questioned and thought, okay, so do I treat the red letters more important, as more important than the rest of, uh, uh, of the letters that are in black? There's actually a song, a contemporary Christian song, is about the red letters, you know? And, and so it's, it's, I thought early in my Christian life that I thought that uh, at the very least the Old Testament was subordinate to the New Testament, that the New Testament was more important than the Old Testament. And as I began to study the Bible more and more, what I discovered is that it's all one book. And it's it's all one story from Genesis to Revelation. It's all inspired. Listen, the words of Jesus that that are marked red in your Bible is just as inspired as the words that are in your Bible that are in black. It's all of God's Word. 100%. Like what Paul said is just as authoritative as what Jesus said. What David said in the Psalms is just as authoritative as what, what Jesus said. And, and this is the point Jesus is making here. Like the, the Pharisees and the, and the scribes and the Sadducees, they were questioning Jesus' legitimacy as not just a teacher, but who he claimed to be. He didn't fit in their mold of who the Messiah was supposed to look like, who the Savior was supposed to look like. And some of the things he said, they hated him for it. And so Jesus said, look, I didn't come to abolish the law. We, need, we as Christians in, you know, in 2022 need to hear that. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish it. The Ten Commandments are just as legitimate and authoritative as they were, uh, as they were in Moses' day as they are today. I came to fulfill them. All of it is for our, for our edification. All of it is for our growth. All of it is for the shaping uh, uh, of our soul and, and to encourage us into godliness. I do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. It's, it's, for, it's for us. <laughs> and he said to the religious leaders, I'll have the words on the screen, he said in John chapter 5, he said to them, he said, look, you, and he said to those who are listening as well, he said, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is that they, that they bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Jesus said, Moses, in those first five books of the Bible, wrote about me. When he wrote about Adam, he was pointing to me. When he wrote about Noah, he was pointing to what I would do on the cross. When he wrote about you know, Abraham, he was pointing to, to me that I would call new people to myself. When he wrote about himself in Deuteronomy, when he said, a greater prophet than I will come, he was referring to me. It's all about me. Like, Jesus is the answer to Adam's rebellion. He is better than Moses because he offers a permanent solution to man's sin problem, something that the Ten Commandments could only point to but not solve. 
In fact, Paul said in Galatians, he said, you know, the law is a tutor that would point us, it served to point us to our need for Jesus. The law serves to, to, to show us the character and holiness of God as well as to show us the character and unholiness of man and our need for a redeemer. Jesus is greater than David for he's a true prince. He's the true prince of peace who will inherit a kingdom that will never end. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah 53 who redeems the guilty. I have all, in my manuscript, I have all these verse references you'll be able to check out if you, if, you check, if you go online later this week. But he came to fulfill the Old Testament because all of it pointed to him. It points to him. It's all about him. And when it comes to just trying to understand, okay, so how do I live my life? The, the, the Bible from Genesis through Revelation shows us how to do that. I, one, of the, one of the best uh, seminary courses, it was an elective that I signed up for, was, was a course on families in the Pentateuch, the first five books of, of the Old Testament. As a result of that, we, we just examined these different families that we read about in the first five books of the Bible, and we spent a whole semester in seminary just thinking about that, process, studying that. As a result, I was convicted that, you know what? I, God has called me to be a priest in my home. I, 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 and that's when I started praying, leading on my family in prayer, you know, uh, every, every night that I'm, that I'm there opening up the scriptures with my kids. That's when I became, where I uh, you know, finally understood that, that uh, helping my, my, my boys and, and, and leading my wife you know, in, in the things of the Lord is not about just, you know, okay, we're going to do a Bible study at you know, 7 o'clock at night on Tuesday. It's just being an example. Leading as I, as I live life with them. One of the sweetest moments was, uh, you can find it on, on Facebook, and it popped up uh, about a month ago on my Facebook memory thing. And it was a video of Seth just running for the first time on, on, the, uh, on the beach in Florida. We were visiting my mom and my stepfather. And, uh, and he was, you know, you know how kids are. First time on sand, you know, it's just, I'm not sure what to think of this, but it feels kind of neat. Uh, so he was like running all around in circles, and, and uh, I, asked, I asked him, Seth, who made the ocean? He said, God made the ocean, Dad. God made the ocean. That's, that's yeah, I, I got that from the five, first five books of the Bible. You know, just using those opportunities and moments to, to help my children see who God is. The, the Apostle Paul said this, uh, and the words will be on, on the screen of Second uh, Timothy. Let's read this together, ready? All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Like it's a, it, all of it. <laughs> Paul says all of it. And Peter says something similar. He said, you know, the apostle Peter, and I think it was First Peter or Second Peter, he said, he said, and by the way, Paul's writings are also included in Holy Scripture. All of it is inspired by God. And, and what is it profitable for? What, what, is it, what is it useful for? For teaching, for correction, for, for reproof, for training in righteousness, 
that the man of God, the person of God, the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Jesus is the point of Scripture. If you want to know how to interact with your community, that's why I encourage you, pick one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and just read a chapter a day. If you want to know how to interact with your neighbors, your family, your community, the people you work with, read the Gospels and see how Jesus interacted with people. And uh, he rubbed shoulders and spent time with with the Scriptures called sinners and tax collectors. Um, Not that tax collectors today are the same as they were then. (laughs) Tax collectors then were like, they were sellouts. They were considered traitors. It was considered sinful to even go into their home by the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. That's why when Jesus would have dinner with them, they were like, what are you doing? You call yourself a a teacher of the law, a a rabbi, and you're, you're hanging out with these people? Surely you can't be from God. And so all of Scripture points us to Jesus, and that's why we should read it and study it and apply it to our lives. And then secondly, in verse 19, we, uh, the, the Word of God shows us how to live. It shows us how to live. He says in verse 19, um, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Why, why did he say this? Well, because Jesus believed that the, that the word of God, the scriptures, were authoritative. That's why he said in verse 18, he said that not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law. What is he talking about there? Well, he's talking about uh, the distinction that marked certain letters in the Hebrew alphabet. There was one letter where uh, you would have a, a, that would mark it as a line, and another letter you would have a dot. And Jesus said, from the smallest line to the smallest dot, not not anything in the law will 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 be done away with, will perish, will will be destroyed. It's all going to be fulfilled, and I'm the one who will be, who will fulfill it. What Jesus was saying there is that it's authoritative. Like I say this. Most often on Sunday mornings, when we read the Word of God, you hear the same voice that spoke the galaxies into existence. Jesus believed that. When he was tempted by the devil in the the desert, you know what Jesus did? He quoted Scripture. He he, he, he looked at Scripture as, as a source of encouragement and a source of life. He always referred to the Scriptures. And he frequently prayed because the Word of God shows us how to live. And so he says, look, whoever relaxes one of, these, one of the least of these words, um, one of the least of these commandments will be least in the kingdom. It, it, it's all about Jesus. In Psalm 19, the words will be on the screen. Jesus believed this to be true. He believed the words of David. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And then if you go to the next slide, it says, More to be desired are they than gold, more than fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. And Jesus said, you know, we must teach it. And anyone who relaxes, <laughs> uh, which I think is a, is a poor translation of the Greek word here. It actually quite, it means literally puts aside. 
you know, basically says, I, anyone who says, I don't like what this says, therefore I'm putting it over here in the category, I'm not going back to it, I'm not teaching it, he said, will be least in the kingdom. I mean, that's you know, some scary words. I was, we were talking about that in our life group on Friday. There are, there are statements Jesus makes all throughout his Sermon on the Mount that are, that are pretty scary. They're, they're warnings to us. And he says here, anybody who does that will be least in the kingdom. Now, I, we don't have the time to get into what does that really mean. Is he talking about losing your salvation? No. W- what is he talking about here? He's talking about the fact that every single one of us who, who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, who have been saved by Jesus, who have been, who've placed our faith and trust in Jesus, we are, will all one day stand before him. It will be a judgment, but it will not be a judgment that will lead to condemnation. It is a judgment that, will lead, that, that, that leads to eternal life and entrance into his kingdom. But there will be rewards in heaven. And the Bible's filled with this. I wrote a whole theological paper on it in Bible college on, uh, on the rewards for the Christian. I, we, we read all about it. Maybe one day I'll, I'll preach on it. But just to, just to kind of show you, uh, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, and the words will be on the screen. It says this, to the Christian, this is written to the Christian, each one's work will be manifest. Talking about the day of judgment. For the day, capital D, that's the day of judgment, will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Like, when you get to heaven and you stand before Jesus, the, that which you've done in his, in his name for his glory, not for people to see, but for, for the honor of the King of kings and Lord of lords, will survive that judgment, and you will be rewarded for that judgment. G, G, on that day of judgment, um, Paul said in 2 Timothy, which was his last letter that he wrote before he was beheaded, he said to Timothy, who was a young pastor, probably in his 30s, he said, um, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and in heaven for me is the crown of life. And so, um, so what Jesus is saying here is teach it all. <laughs> teach all the scriptures. I believe the best way to do that is it's called expository preaching. It's to open it up and let's look at a passage and unpack it. I think the best way to study a Bible at your home is to work through portions of the Bible um, you can do that through, there are Bible, you know, Bible reading plans where you can read through the Bible in a year. Uh, there, you could do what I suggested, read a chapter out of one of the Gospels in a way that you're not just breezing through it, but thoughtfully reading through each chapter once a day. Um, it's authoritative. It will, it will change your life. God will use it in your life. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he said, for the one who teaches all of, the, all, of his, all of the law, all of the word, will be great in the kingdom of heaven. Um, I remember the day that I, the, the, my ordination ceremony, where Ed Hardesty, who, who did the ordination charge, usually there's a person who preaches to the person who is ordained or being ordained, 
and then there's another person who preaches to the rest of the congregation. It's a rich history. Um, it, is, it is important, I believe. I, I, there's a lot of value in it. Well, Ed preached to me. And, um, and I frequently go back to what he said to me at the very beginning, the first words out of his mouth. Uh, regarding the scriptures was Kruxan Tan Laga, which is Greek for preach the word. He, preached, he, he spoke from 2 Timothy chapter 4. And the passage that he spoke on is, is uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I, the words will not be on the screen, but I just want you to hear this. I'm, I'm drawing this you know, to a close, but I want you to hear this. He says, I mean, like, this haunts me, and uh, in a good way. But it says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my t- departure has come. Like Those words are not just for pastors, they're for all of us. That's why James in the, in the New Testament says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Like I have said to the elders, and I love that the, our elder board you know, feels this as equally as I feel it, and that is, uh, my boss is Jesus, and I'm going to stand before him and give an account for every word, thoughtful word and careless word, that I have said in every pastoral role that I've had. Um, but I, I, I really do believe that there is nothing more important that I have to say um, than what is in this, in, in this book, the Bible. It is authoritative, which, which is the last and very brief point, and that is the word of God leads us to the grace of God. Uh, look at this quickly with me. It says, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What is he saying there? It, here's what he's saying. And, it, and he just, this is why the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders hated him so much. What he was saying was, you guys, those who were listening to him, uh, he said, you guys, you guys know about the Pharisees, you know about the scribes, you know about the Sadducees, they're really good at quoting chapter and verse. Now, they had the whole thing memorized. They had the, the Old Testament memorized, especially the Pharisees and the scribes. They've got it nailed down, it looks like. They, they dress like they know the Word of God. They act like they know the Word of God. Uh, they are an encyclopedia of the Word of God. And, and, and what they have created were a system of rules to keep you from from disobeying the commandments. So I'll give you an example. One of them was like, so the commandment is to keep the Sabbath holy, right? That's one of the Ten Commandments. Keep the Sabbath holy. But to make sure that people did that, they were, there were 39 separate rules that were created and written down to make sure that people did not violate that law, that they did not break the Sabbath. So uh, basically, 
it boiled down to how many steps on the Sabbath you are allowed to take before it was considered work. Imagine living under that. It was written down as to how many words and letters you were permitted to write down on paper before it was considered to be work. Jesus had some harsh things to say about these guys. He said in Matthew 23, and the words will be on the screen, he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as you yourselves are. Like, that won't win friends <laughs> with the religious community of his day, right? He, he said, you're really good at shutting up the kingdom. When you should, point, you should be pointing people to what the scriptures point to or who the scriptures point to, they point to me. And so he said this, what he was saying, this is, I love this. He's going back to the Beatitudes, and what did he say in the Beatitudes? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the what? kingdom of heaven. What is he saying in verse 20? <laughs> the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees, they think they have all the righteousness they possibly could need to win the approval of a holy God. And they are disillusional. They're disillusioned. They're fooled and they're fools. The only way your righteousness will exceed the Pharisees and the scribes is if your righteousness comes from one whose righteousness exceeds the Pharisees and the scribes. And who is that one? It's Jesus. It's what all the scriptures point to. He is everything. I heard somebody refer to, to, to David, you know, slaying the Goliaths in our lives. That's a misunderstanding of the story. We are not David. We are the cowering Israelites on the sidelines Jesus is David and greater than David, and he is the one who slays the Goliaths in our lives. Not us, him. He is the champion. He's the protagonist. Satan is the antagonist, and we are the ones he came to redeem. All the scriptures point to that. And uh, the Pharisees and the scribes, they missed that point. And Jesus said, it's all about me. And if you find your life in me, you will find life. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll end with this. Legalism. Legalism always says, I was just, I wrote this down this mor uh, yesterday morning. Legalism always says, look at what I can do. The point of the Bible is simply this look at what God will do uh, for you through Jesus Christ. Legalism says, I am capable. True Christianity says, Jesus paid it all. Legalism says, the gateway to holiness is what I must do. True Christianity says, the gateway to holiness is through what Jesus already did. Legalism says you must work for your righteousness. True Christianity says you can rest on the finished work on, on which Jesus accomplished on the cross and in his work alone. Yeah, I mean, you hear that? Yeah, does that make sense? Legalism says you got to do, 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 do. I hear this phrase a lot, even in Christian circles. You're enough. The testimony of the Bible is you're not. <laughs> you're not enough. And that's good news because Jesus is enough. We can rest in the work that he accomplished. And brothers and sisters, I, I promise you, if you rest in his work, I mean, you, you hunger and thirst 
for a righteousness that he can that only he can satisfy you won't need a bunch of you won't need like 39 rules to to keep the sabbath your heart's desire will be to please him maybe you won't won't do that perfectly but it will be to please him let the word of god saturate your heart and let the holy spirit use his word to transform your life that's where real transformation comes like I heard somebody say, you got to fake it till you make it. It was from a Christian. I've said this before. It was one of the most like, baffling things I've ever heard. I gotta, that is not in the Bible. There is no faking it until you make it. Um, Jesus accomplished it all. And as a result, he has empowered me, and he is strengthening me, and he is molding me, and he is shaping me to live the life that he's called me to live. And the same is true for every single one of you in here that, that place your faith and trust in Jesus. The difference between legalism and Jesus is that legalism says that you, are, that you are enough while Jesus says that he is enough. He's enough. He is everything. He is the point of the, bio, of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Amen? Amen? Amen. So um, if you're not a Christian, your first step, your, your, the first thing you should do is is, is place your faith and trust in him. The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the grave, you will be saved. And for the rest of us who have already done that, man, rest in what Jesus accomplished on your behalf. You are a king's kid. You have been redeemed. You are a son. You are a daughter of the God of all creation. And all the, the crappy things that have happened in your life, God is in, the, is in the process of turning all that around. You might not see it now, but he's turning it around for your good. And the reason why you can know that is because he loves you and he treasures you and he calls you his own. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the Sermon on the Mount. Thank you for what you're doing in our lives. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.